As part of Black History Month, we wanted to take some time to acknowledge the work being done by current black scientists. That's right. Part of the goal of STEMinistas is to educate the public about science and the news. And this includes talking about the scientists behind the discoveries happening now. We know from studies where children are asked to draw scientists that there are certain stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. For instance, children are much more likely to draw men, especially the older that they get. Of course, we can't say that from a children's drawing what exactly this means about their future career ambitions, but some researchers argue that these drawings are kind of a reflection of the stereotypes that society holds. Having a role model or a mentor that looks like you is certainly not required, but it can be helpful, especially for people entering into fields where people who hold their identities are underrepresented, which includes Black and Indigenous people of color in academia. Another problem in academia is that the work of Black scientists is undersighted compared to their white counterparts, and citing someone else's work in your own research is a way to give them credit for contributing to your ideas and what led you to do those experiments. So we've talked about how our experiments are just a small part of the bigger picture and the puzzle, and how we're building on centuries of work. We cite other authors to acknowledge their contributions and also call attention to people working on similar studies. How does our work compare to theirs, and what does that mean for the bigger picture? Citations are a measure of success. If our citation lists do not accurately reflect the contributions of members of underrepresented groups, those researchers do not get the visibility they deserve, which can affect their careers and also limit progress of the whole field. And we all deserve credit for a job well done. So this week, Emma and I took a look at our own citation lists and considered whose work might be missing from this list. After reflecting on that, we wanted to highlight some of the latest work by two black scientists in our very own fields. So we hope you'll enjoy hearing about these researchers. In the lab, I study RNA. Many of you are probably more familiar with RNA now than you ever thought you would be because of the RNA vaccines coming onto the scene. In case you're not familiar, we'll do a quick recap of the central dogma of biology and introduce you to what RNA is. In our cells, we have DNA, which are the instructions for our body to make all the building blocks that we need to live. RNA messages are made from DNA and are sent to the building block production part of the body to produce proteins. RNA comes in many different forms, but the one we look at the most are the RNA messages, which tell our bodies what proteins to produce. The scientist that I've looked into today is Dr. Tracy Johnson, and she's a professor of molecular cell and developmental biology studying RNA at the University of California. Dr. Johnson is also the Keith and Cecilia Tarasaki Presidential Endowed Chair. Dr. Johnson is also honored by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute as an HHMI professor. The HHMI professor program is very competitive and prestigious. HHMI professors are very well funded, and they are especially recognized as investing in undergraduates and helping to reform undergraduate programs. At the University of California, Dr. Johnson started the Institute Pathways to Success, which helps undergraduates have research experience as early as their freshman year. They also really make an effort to recruit diverse candidates. That is really cool. I was lucky to have a research experience starting my freshman year summer at Rutgers, and that was a huge part of actually why I ended up choosing Rutgers for college. But I know that that's not 
everyone's common experience at college and it can be hard to find uh, programs like this especially at like smaller liberal arts schools might not offer that also some students don't know they want to go into research when they start college and even if they do it can be difficult to know what steps to take to get into a research laboratory so there's this kind of etiquette about applying to research positions and it's not really the instructions aren't necessarily clearly posted anywhere, so programs like this that demystify that process of applying is really cool and really helpful. Definitely, and especially to get people into the university and start out immediately. I know for me, having research opportunities early on really helped me see that, okay, science is something that I want to be involved in for the rest of my life. But the program that Dr. Johnson started also has a peer mentoring aspect to it where undergrads can form relationships with faculty and older students who will invest in them and help them learn about research and different options for future science careers. Yeah, peer mentorship is also a cool part of the program. And again, I I just feel like my in my research journey, I've been really lucky um, to kind of stumble my way into these scenarios where in terms of mentorship, like I had really great mentors in lab that I just naturally connected to. Um, and so the graduate students in labs helped me learn about career options and kind of how to navigate the graduate school interview process. And the postdoc in the lab taught me, obviously, um, all the techniques that I was doing, but also she kind of talked to me about the, the ins and outs of academia. The postdoc also read my entire undergraduate thesis, <laughs> and she gave me a lot of feedback, even if it looked kind of scary. She had this penchant for using a red pen when she edited, so I would get my oh, papers man. back. Oh, yeah, man. Really? I know. She's <laughs> one of those. I, I love her, but I get my paper back, and it looks like it's, like, bleeding. <laughs> red is not a good color for editing no I tried to ask her to switch to green one time but she said no (laughs) Um, but yeah if you don't have these people in your lab then it's really helpful to connect with peer mentors because they also you know instead of these graduate students and postdocs that are further on in in their careers the peers are kind of more at your level and so they're closer to the experiences that you're having um, so you get a different perspective from them also it can help to talk to someone outside of your lab Um, so a peer mentor can be kind of removed from the situation definitely I didn't have the opportunity to have peer mentors in college but I definitely had some faculty at my university that helped me think through if grad school was for me and they encouraged me to pursue science and wrote me recommendation letters and had many conversations with me about what it would be like to pursue a PhD. But I think it would have been helpful to have an older student mentor me as a freshman and a sophomore, just to kind of have someone to look up to, ask questions of someone who's gone through it before you, but has, is more closer to you in age. So they remember, oh, this is what it was like two or three years ago when I went through this. Definitely. And it's also fun to be a peer mentor. I mean, now that I'm at UNC, I've, I've gotten to be on that side of the situation, too. It's nice to share what you've learned with other people. Yeah, I think that's the more fun side of it, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Johnson is clearly very committed to making science accessible to students. What sort of science does she do in her lab? As we mentioned earlier, Dr. Johnson studies RNA. We talk a lot in science about gene regulation, so how some genes can be turned off, some genes can be turned on, and how this can be due to so many different factors. 
some of these factors are environmental, like what you eat or what you're exposed to in the environment, whereas other factors can be encoded in our genetics. For instance, if a gene is mutated in such a way that it is always on or off. There's a lot of work in the genetics community to understand what is regulating which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. We've discussed epigenetics before on the podcast, but to give a brief background, epigenetics is how the environment affects our genes. In Dr. Johnson's lab, they're tackling the regulation of genes through the lens of epigenetics, and they also look at a process called alternative splicing. It was really exciting to me to read some of Dr. Johnson's work because in my grad school lab, we study both epigenetics and alternative splicing. Alternative splicing is how one gene can code for many different proteins. As we mentioned earlier, genes code for RNA, which are the messages that tell our body what to make. However, only 2% of the genes in our whole genome code for the vast amount of proteins that we have. Wow, I actually didn't know that percentage, but that's crazy. I definitely would have guessed higher. So how can we have so many proteins but so few genes coding for those proteins? Well, some parts of RNA can be included or excluded from the final RNA message that will be sent to produce a protein. So depending on what the final message is, it determines what the protein is that will be made. It's like if you had five Scrabble letters and could form different words based off of including or excluding the letters. It's fascinating that our body can use so few genes to create so many proteins. What model system does Dr. Johnson use to study alternative splicing? In her lab, they use yeast to study this. And this is the kind of yeast you would use to make bread, wine, or beer. And yeast is a great way to study splicing because you can determine the mechanism of how splicing works. It's harder to study in mouse cells, which is what we use, because there's a lot more regulation happening. Dr. Johnson's lab is also unique because she's trying to tackle gene regulation from different angles. We call these kinds of labs interdisciplinary because they utilize information from multiple science disciplines. Dr. Johnson's lab looks at genetics, epigenetics, and cell biology. Well, while I dabble in genetics, my main interests are in the fields of neuroscience and cell biology. And particularly, I'm interested in what goes wrong at the cellular level in situations like aging and neurodegeneration. Who did you decide to research from this field? Well, I chose Dr. Nathan Smith because our interests actually align very well. I have um, a special interest in glia cells in the brain, as you probably have heard me talk about astrocytes lots of times on this podcast. <laughs> So most of the activity of the brain is traditionally attributed to neurons, whereas glia are usually considered as supporting cast members. But there's actually been a growing appreciation that these glia cells, um, which do support neurons, they're not just background. They actually can play an active role in disease progression. So we really need to look at both of these cell types to understand the whole story, neurons and glia. And I don't know um, if you experienced this, Emma, but it was actually really hard to pick just one scientist to go over because there's a lot of really exciting research in this field. And I always enjoy meeting and learning about new people. So this was a very fun project. I agree. It was hard to choose one person. And I feel like there's a lot more people I want to go read their papers now, read more about their labs, see what they're up to just from doing this quick research we did. Definitely. I mean, that it would that was one of my major motivations of going into science is I thought I was so interested by the people behind the discoveries 
and it seemed like such a fun atmosphere. Um, so you can get caught up in your PhD sometimes, like in the weeds with your project. So it's, it was nice to kind of take a step back and, and think about the other people in the world thinking about the same things that I'm thinking about. But to give a little more background on Dr. Nathan Smith, he is an assistant professor in pediatrics and pharmacology and physiology at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. He's also a principal investigator at the Children's National Research Institute. Dr. Smith has a KO1 award from the Neurological Disorders and Stroke Branch of the National Institute of Health, a National Science Foundation Frontiers Award, and an award from the Department of Defense. So it's a very well-funded lab. <laughs> For sure. That is an impressive list of funders. Yes. <laughs> what interests Dr. Smith about glial cells? So Dr. Smith is very interested in the interactions of glial cells and neurons. And he focuses on two types of glial cells, astrocytes, which I've talked about before, and microglia. So microglia are considered the resident immune cells of the brain, meaning that they normally hang out in the brain and aren't deployed from other parts of the body, like T cells, for instance, that you might think of um, when you think of immunity. So these microglia can also, um, beyond their immune functions, they can actually eat synapses that become dangerous. And synapses, as a reminder, are um, connections between two neurons. It's especially important for the brain to have some immune defense on site because this organ is kept very isolated from other organs by the blood-brain barrier. Yes, that's exactly right. And speaking of the blood-brain barrier, let's introduce astrocytes again. Why not? <laughs> Your favorite cell. Yes. So astrocytes are critical for maintaining homeostasis in the brain. That's the classic support function of neurons that they take on. Um, and part of this task includes regulating the blood-brain barrier and helping to adjust the water and ion levels in the brain. And astrocytes also um, surround neuronal synapses. A synapse is the area where one neuron makes contact with another neuron and transmits information, usually by sending it neurotransmitters. These can take many forms, single amino acids, short peptide chains of amino acids, and even ATP, the currency of the cell. These signals will trigger some kind of action or response in the neuron. And recently, scientists discovered that glia can contribute to this kind of signaling too, uh, which was a surprise because we thought that they were kind of silent cells. Um, so this process is called gliotransmission and occurs when astrocytes release molecules like calcium or amino acids that have some effect on a neuron. Sometimes researchers explain synapses by saying, that it's a way for neurons to talk to each other. Well, astrocytes have just joined this conversation. <laughs> Dr. Smith is interested in how glia talk to neurons in the neurotypical or healthy brain, as well as how communication issues between glia and neurons might contribute to conditions including epilepsy, ADHD, and depression. And on top of his great science, Dr. Smith is a dedicated mentor and has actually a really interesting uh, mix of postdocs, undergrad students, and high school students in his lab. When I looked at his um, lab webpage, it's actually pretty uncommon for high school students to work in a lab. So it's very cool that he provides that opportunity for students that are so young in their science career. Yeah, I worked in high school, senior year of high school in a lab, and it was a great experience. I knew nothing, but I got to just be there and dissect a bunch of fruit flies. Oh, that's awesome. But outside of Dr. Smith's 
own lab, he's also provided mentoring to a broader audience by serving on career advice panels, including a podcast called NINDS, Building Up the Nerve for Neuroscience Trainees, which is put on by the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And here he provided advice on grant applications. And Dr. Smith is also a person who really appreciates art. Uh, so he collaborated with Dr. Janet Awasa, who is very well known as a, a really great science artist, to transform one of the pictures that he took of glia and neurons um, as a piece of data into this beautiful illustration that was published on the cover of Neuron in 2014. And this image is featured prominently on his lab website if you want to go see it. Dr. Smith is also a black belt in martial arts, so kudos to him. He mentioned on the NINDS podcast episode how important it was for him to have an outlet in grad school, and I couldn't agree more. I discovered weightlifting and knitting and (laughs) reading a lot more in grad school, and it's been such an amazing way to get my mind off of science, but also like prioritize my mental health, too. Definitely. It helps to like have something outside of lab to help you through the ruts. Um, So yes, for me, knitting, running, playing music, they all keep me grounded. And we hope that you enjoyed hearing about the work of Drs. Johnson and Smith today. If you want to learn more about either one of them, we listed their lab websites in the sources. And also Dr. Johnson's Twitter handle is um, at the Tracy Lab, and Dr. Smith's is at Smith Lab 2018 if you want to hear about their latest research. Mm-hmm.